So now I can start to see the lights of the train approaching us. And I knew basically it's, it, we're going to get her out or we're going to die together because there was just no way I was going to leave her. I'm Pete Pinto, and I put fear on hold, staring down a train that was about to take a life of a young lady. This story takes place in Brookhaven, New York. It is the largest town on Long Island and sits just 50 miles east of Manhattan. But on this October day, all was quiet at the DePinto household. Until it wasn't. It was a warm Tuesday, a typical day. In fact, as I was finished mowing the lawn, my wife called me over and told me to look up at the clouds, and she said, it looks like two angels up there. I said, ah, it's probably your mom and dad looking down at us. About 10 o'clock, I was sitting in bed reading. My wife was also reading. And about 10.15, I heard a distinct noise. The DePintos live about a third of a mile from a train crossing. They were used to hearing diesel-powered locomotives rumbling past. But this was a different sound. This was the sound of crunching metal. I got out of bed, grabbed my flashlight, put my sneakers on. And for the first time, at that time, in 35 years, my wife said, I'm going with you. I said, all right, let's go. So we both ran out of the house, jumped in the car, and drove around the corner. And as I turned the corner onto Arthur Avenue, now seeing a car at the intersection of Montauk and Arthur Avenue, and its hood was all banged up. So I drove up there, and at that time I told my wife, listen, fire department is gonna be coming. Get out of your side and turn the car around so we can get out of here before we're trapped and we're gonna have to stay until the end. I ran up to the lady and I said, are you okay? And she started talking about, it's my fault, it's my fault, I hit the car. What are you talking about? She goes, I hit the car, I hit the car. I don't know what happened to it, I don't know where it is. Pete DePinto did not see a second car, the one the woman said she had hit. Fortunately, Pete's wife, Laura, who had decided to go with him this time, looked down the tracks. At that time, my wife got out of the car and walked up towards the tracks to go around the car, and she yelled at me. She goes, Pete, the other car is down the tracks. So I told my wife, take this young lady and bring her to our car. This way she's safe. Because there was no blood or anything there. She was just shaken up. So I ran down about 100 feet pitch dark on the tracks. I just had my flashlight and I'm running down. And as I'm getting closer to the car, I see that her driver's door was totally demolished. And her driver's side airbag and front airbags were deployed. I banged on the window. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? She goes, I, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know where I am. The driver of that second vehicle was 43-year-old Janice Esposito of nearby Holbrook, New York. She was on her way home after visiting her mother, who just had surgery. She decided to go through Brookhaven. It was dark when she approached the train crossing at the intersection of Montauk Highway and Arthur Avenue. Here is Janice. I'm coming up to Arthur Avenue and uh, just trying to figure out, you know, do I want to go left or right, you know, which way to go home to the family? And, you know, I just saw the car coming down kind of fast. She just kind of swerved and like, oh, God, she's about to hit. She hit the car, and I knew I went backwards, uh, but I thought I was on the shoulder. Janice was disoriented. 
Her airbag had deployed, and she had no idea her minivan was in the middle of the tracks. Pete describes what happened next. At that point, I heard the sound of a train leaving the Bellport station, which is about half a mile away, and the gates came down at the crossing of Arthur Avenue and Montauk Highway. So I knew at that time a train was coming. So I yelled to her, I said, we got to get you out now. You're on the tracks. Her side airbag was deployed, so it was all the way down. She couldn't see the train coming. She was dazed and confused because of the impact. So I'm sure she wasn't even hearing the bells or the whistles, never mind looking at the lights of the train as it's approaching us. If that would have happened, I'm sure she would have panicked. And that would have created you know, more problems to get her out. Pete knew he had precious little time to get the driver out. But when he opened the door, he wondered, is there another passenger in here? We've had accidents in that general vicinity. We've had numerous accidents over in that area, but there was never an incident where somebody was stuck in a car on a track. So I ran around the front of the car and as I was doing it, my first and only thought was, please God, don't let her foot be trapped or pinned. So as I went around and opened up the passenger's door, I noticed a baby's a car seat in the back. Now my mind went, oh God. I said, is there anybody else in this car? There's a child seat in the back. She goes, oh no, he's home with my husband. So now I can start to see the lights of the train approaching us. And I knew basically it's, it, we're gonna get her out or we're gonna die together because there was just no way I was gonna leave her. Pete DePinto was a volunteer firefighter, but he was not on duty that night. He had no equipment and no backup. What he did have was the courage to run down the tracks to try to save whoever was in that minivan. As he reached the van, the crossing gates descended. Warning lights were activated, and the bells sounded. A four-car commuter train going 65 miles per hour was headed right for them. They had seconds to spare. So I reached in, grabbed her right arm with my left hand, reached over her and grabbed her left hand with my right arm and pulled as hard as I could. And she came flying out of the car and we kind of stumbled onto the tracks. I didn't want to fall, I didn't want her to fall because I knew we didn't have time. And I knew where the signal huts were. And I knew that the impact that was going to occur was just a few seconds away. We had to get there because, all right, the train didn't get us, but the flying parts of the car and everything else could have hit either one of us in the head and killed us that way. So I knew that, you know, we weren't out of the woods yet. So literally, as we were running, it was about five seconds after we got out of the car, there was a tremendous boom. Smoke all over it because by that time, the train had realized that there was a car on the tracks and he hit the brakes. So his brakes are locking up and him hitting the car, the smoke is just unbelievable the amount of smoke. Janice Esposito, the woman he saved, describes the feeling of seeing her car get hit by a train. Everything from that night is kind of in this weird timeline for me, because uh, I remember him getting me out of the car. I remember him ushering me behind the box there um, and just seeing the car up in the air flying. And it's like, oh my God, I was just in that car. And it, it didn't seem real. Like everything is still very surreal that that even happened. I can just remember hugging him and just telling him, I, I think it was, you know, I owe you my life, or I, you saved my life, I owe you my life, something like that. My poor wife was up at the corner, seeing all the smoke. She thought I died. There's, she said there's just no way that he was able to get her out of that car in that short time. 
So we came around the signal huts out of the smoke and lo and behold, uh, my wife looked at me and almost fainted because now seeing that I'm alive and not dead. Something told Laura to go with her husband that night, the first time she did in over 35 years. Was it the two angels she saw in the clouds earlier that day? Or were Pete and Laura the two angels, destined to save the life of a wife and mother stuck on the railroad tracks? She's the one who noticed. I was focusing on the lady who originally hit her, and she's the one who noticed that the lights were shining on Vonnie's restaurant. And that's why she yelled to me, Pete, the other car is down the track. Really, without her help, it may have taken me another minute or so to really see what was going on because everything else was dark. In retrospect, uh, time was of the essence that night. If I didn't get down to that car at the time I did, it might have turned out completely different. After the accident, Janice Esposito realized how close she came to never seeing her family again. When I called my brother after the crash and let him know I, my car's demolished and I'm in someone else's car now and I think I'm going to the hospital. And it was a matter of like two minutes. We know that everything changed. It's like I could have been you know, dead. I was just in such shock at that point. The reporter the next day saying that she timed it and it was 16 seconds. I've seen the footage on YouTube, you know, they had like a camera angle from there and it was about four seconds. So it's like, we got out in 12. I, could, I can't make it to the stairs right now in 12 seconds. Forget trying to get out of a car. <laughs> Luckily, Janice did not have her son in the car at the time. Pete later discovered that they had something special in common. She had a seven, at that time, a seven-year-old son, Daniel. Um, I also have a son named Daniel, so uh, I was so happy that uh, Daniel was was able to be with his mom again for the rest of his life. Twelve seconds. A train weighing over 20 tons rushing towards them. Two lives in the balance. Pete and Janice reflect on a night neither of them will forget. I, I was just glad I was able to to be at a place that somebody needed my help. And I'm glad I was able to do what needed to be done. I look at it now saying, wow, I don't know how I did it. But, you know, uh, people talk about you get superhuman strength sometimes in an emergency situation. And, you know, your uh, adrenaline levels just go sky high. And uh, that's probably what happened because uh, um, I look back at it like, wow, it was uh, God's presence was there. That's for sure. Um, I don't take the days for granted. And I make sure, again, that I... I say what I mean whenever somebody's leaving the house. If I see a loved one, if I'm thinking about somebody, I, I you know, I, I, I know it could be the last time I see them, and I, it makes me pause now because I know it can change that quickly. For his heroism that day, Pete DePinto was awarded a Carnegie Medal. It was one of the proudest days of his life, and it earned him the nickname the Pajama Avenger by the woman he saved. Two years later, I guess it was... Uh... I was presented the Carnegie Medal by Eric, the president of Carnegie Foundation. One of the proudest days of my life. He's the, the pajama avenger. You know, he got out of his way to come over and, you know, him and Laura. You know, if, if it wasn't for them doing that action and not just staying in bed relaxed, you know, I, I wouldn't be here right now. You know, my, the entire family dynamic would be done. We call them heroes. And in many respects, a person who saves someone's life is a hero. But to Pete, he was just doing what he thought anyone else would do in that situation. I, I still to this day don't consider myself a hero. I consider myself a human being that did what needed to be done at the time. 
You know, you see somebody that needs help, you help that person. And that's all it was. People always ask me, were you afraid? To be perfectly honest, 100%, no, I had no fear in it at all. There wasn't time to be scared. Time was a factor. And I knew it was literally one chance to get her out. It was either we were going to live together or die together. I think about Janice a lot, and my wife also. We, we talk about it all the time. Um, we're not family, we're not related, we're not friends, but we are linked. And I'll always thank God I had an opportunity to uh, ensure that she has a life with her husband and son and family. And uh, just that thought makes me very happy every day. Thank you for listening to Fear on Hold. My name is Eric Zarin, and I'm president and chair of Andrew Carnegie's Hero Fund, the 100-year-old foundation that awards the Carnegie Medal, North America's highest civilian award for heroism. As president, I get to see the nominations of heroic acts that come in from across the United States and Canada. I'm constantly amazed at the extraordinary risk people willingly take on to save others, who are often strangers. Since 1904, we've awarded the Carnegie Medal to more than 10,000 people. This podcast is just a small sample of their incredible stories. Visit us at carnegiehero.org. Subscribe to hear other stories where heroes put their fear on hold, including Claire Higgins Cooper, who at just 14 years old jumped into cold, choppy water when she saw a boat capsize. These people were not strong swimmers, and their boat was no longer acting as a vessel to keep somebody afloat. I think that's when I realized that this was a bad situation. These heroic stories are based on investigative reports made by the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission and the personal memories of medal recipients and witnesses. Fear on Hold was produced by Big Science Pods, Bill Garrison, and the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission. Funding was provided by the Carnegie Hero Fund. Original music by Big Science Music. Thank you to all of the heroes and witnesses who participated in this podcast. And a special thanks to all heroes everywhere, past, present, and future.